0: Humanity can either have democracy or the internet, but not both. If there was
1: a gym for your brain that delivered the same benefits to your mind that regular gyms do to your body, would you subscribe? I'm Mike Stopforth, and this is The One-Eyed Man, where I talk to fascinating people who seem to have figured out something that the rest of us mortals don't yet know. Today I'm talking to Jacques Rousseau. Jacques is a secular activist, a social commentator and a lecturer on critical thinking and ethics in the School of Management Studies in the University of Cape Town's Commerce Faculty. He also happens to be one of my favorite people to follow on Twitter, a platform that we discuss at some length in this conversation. We also talk about what critical thinking is, why it is so incredibly important and why, despite the obvious benefits most of us just don't do it. I know you'll enjoy it, and if you do, please go ahead and share it. Maybe we can start there in Cape Town, Jacques. Can you tell me a little bit more about how you came to be in that place doing the work that you do, and also, I guess, further to that, how you came to be a public figure on the topic of critical thinking and the ethics work that you do as well?
0: Sure. Um, a lot to, to unpack, I suppose. The, and the Cape Town thing is easy. I've been here most of my life. I spent a few years living in the U.S. and the U.K. U.K. very young, but U.S. Uh, just after school. But otherwise, it's mostly been Cape Town and, and surrounds. And the career, I mean, there's a book that I've forgotten the title of now, which described philosophy as indoor work with no heavy lifting. And, I, and that's the kind of line I used often to justify <laughs> why I went into it. But obviously, that's um, somewhat facetious it's uh It's probably got something to do with the fact that one of my interests coming out of uh, out of later uh, high school education was getting interested in in world religions and values and ethics and that sort of thing, and reading texts and immersing yourself into these various thought patterns made me realize how much they had in in common um not necessarily in terms of narrative structure but in terms of human cognition and desire and and I started trying to want to understand. Why we believe yeah. the things we do and how we come to believe some of the strange things that we do. So it's driven by, by that in a yes. sense. And I um, couldn't really find much passion for anything that was, uh, too technical or directed. I wanted to look at big issues in a sense. Uh, and philosophy was the biggest one of yeah. all, or at least as a field, it encompasses everything in a sense.
1: So, what do you think sparked that curiosity for for big things? I, I, I mean, I want to get back into understanding how you moved into the space of you know, being a, a political commentator or a, or a, a social commentator. But where did the curiosity come from? What was the spark, the genesis of that desire to understand the causes of things?
0: I'm going to give you a slight kind of Larry David answer to that one. Uh, from from very young. People irritated the hell out of me. <laughs> and and <laughs> happy with that. I mean, that's a powerful motivator. And we we all and including myself, right? And we we all just do such peculiar things and get in our own way and trip up our own ambitions and plans and goals and that sort of thing. And it seemed at the at the naive young stage that I was. It seemed like there must be some way to address these questions in a in an overarching sort of way, in a way that, like a theory of everything, which is obviously is not not what do I, what I aim for and what I can possibly achieve. But that but that was the the idea. Growing up was that was that why waste your time looking at the surface level questions when you could instead attack the fundamental or the the kind of yeah you know, the base questions of of life and the universe and everything. To do a Douglas Adams line this time, but. <laughs> And 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 that then it was just me pottering around and 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 doing my studies and so forth. And the the public work started. I mean, I was really teaching, but actually, a, a friend of mine that some of people who listen to the mm. show might know, Jonathan Fall, who used to be at IDASA, one of our political think tanks. He was very well connected with all of the yes. media, and he said to me one day we were arguing about politics as we always do. And he said, well, why don't you write a column about this? And I sent it to Angela Quintal on his suggestion, and it got published, and people liked it. And from then on, I just started doing it regularly. And the the writing led to fairly regular invitations to join radio shows. And mostly thanks to my friend Eusebius, we, we, we do a semi-regular thing on critical thinking on, on 702.
1: Your journey was one of... Intrigue in the philosophical in in inquiry and in questioning and in in unraveling the way that we think, but you find yourself in the faculty of commerce uh, <laughs> teaching uh, <laughs> students uh, in, in, you know, in in management studies um, and so I imagine that the vast majority mm. of the people that you you teach and you work with on a daily basis aren 't necess- or wouldn't necessarily put philosopher as the first descriptor in their Twitter bio. How do you find yourself in in the world of business teaching people who are very worried about money how how to think better?
0: That's been quite a challenge. I mean, so I was in the philosophy department up until 1998, I think it was. But at that stage, the philosophy Mm. department at the University of Cape Town was uh, four members of staff, and uh, the faculty wasn't – uh, very profitable, the commerce faculty was, and they had the leverage to basically hire more people, in a sense, and there was this pre-existing course that taught a little bit of business ethics, and and more weirdly, come to think of it now, kind of more formal logic stuff, which commerce students certainly would have had no interest in, and um, so I, I was, in a sense, parachuted in to take over that course when the person who was doing it um, retired, And I've been there ever since. So it is a strange thing. It is an outlier. There's ways in which it does make sense. The um, accreditation authorities, for example, for the accountancy streams require students to show some training in in business ethics and critical thinking and so forth. That's reassuring. So I do tick certain boxes that they understand, but they don't necessarily appreciate uh, what I do. The odd thing is that I will have students come to me three, four years later and say, now I get it. Now I wish I'd paid more attention at the time. But it's, it's a bit of a hard sell.
1: I, I mean, that's fair. And I understand why, why it might not land with the same level of potency. At, I mean, my first experience or venture into the idea of thinking critically was somewhat ironically because of an introduction to the idea of critical thinking, cognitive bias or logical fallacies through, through social media of all places, which is why I say it, it quite ironic. And, and I, up until that point in time, am, am comfortable to admit that I'd never really thought all that much about how we think. I'd, I'd assumed that thinking was something I'd kind of done since day one, and it was as natural as breathing or eating or any of the other things that keep me mostly alive. And, and for the first time ever, I, I guess I was, I was offered the opportunity to think about the effectiveness of the way I think and how, how being more or less effective as a thinker had implications for all of the other things that I did uh, or didn't do for that matter. Yeah. How, how, do you explain, how do you explain the importance of the work that you do to somebody who's never been exposed to it or, or has never heard it referenced in documentation or has never been challenged uh, to think differently? How, how do you explain it to a five-year-old?
0: Okay, so a five-year-old might be a stretch for me. Um, <laughs> How do you explain it to a 15-year-old? I mean, so what you're describing now is, is is what one could call, not to a 15-year-old or a five-year-old, but you'd call it metacognition, right? So thinking about one's thinking. Yes. And while I, w- while I wouldn't use that word, what I would try to persuade people is that a, a kind of diagnostic, a health check on one's own thinking and cognition and so forth is the only way that you can uncover deep-seated biases that you might have or flaws in your reasoning process. So you don't even need to get into a values conversation or an ethics conversation or whether you have the right values in life. You can say to a person, whatever it is that you want to achieve, and this is what I would say to the commerce students, whatever it is that you want to achieve, you can get there more optimally, either quicker or cheaper or with less uh, (laughs) carnage along the way and lost friendships and so forth if you understand what you are doing and apply the right methods to the to the problem um and you can then get on to either fixing more complicated problems or you secure yourself some leisure time or whatever it might be but those of us who think that we are already able reasoners are sometimes most at risk of not doing this right because you get this overconfidence if you think you already know what you're doing so it's self-doubt and and kind of a, a lack of trust in your reasoning ability is, I think, a key thing to try to inculcate in people and remind them of. I
1: imagine if you, speaking to a room of 25 relatively successful and influential business people, and you asked all of them, would you like to think better? (laughs) Fairly simple question. Or would you Hmm. like to be more efficient in your thing? Or any of the other um, advantages that you've listed right now? I can't imagine anybody saying no. And yet there's overwhelming evidence (laughs) that we will go to great lengths to avoid doing so, to avoid the pain of having to think better. Because it, there is a cost, right? Yeah. Uh, even just in, in energy, in, in sort of in mental calories, if you like. Why are we resistant to questioning the validity or the effectiveness of our own think, especially in, I find in the business world or in the world of leadership? What, what, why are we so resistant if the advantages are so
0: clear? To go back to your, your example, I, I'm not sure I'd agree with you that people would not say no to that situation, or to okay. that offer rather. But the reason I say that is because I've come over the last few years to, to start being quite confident in a, in a diagnostic separation between objective rationality of the sort that I was always trained to be uh, the gold standard, you know, which aspire to becoming Dr. Spock sort of characters yeah versus a kind of situational or contextual rationality mm. and those people would in many instances be flourishing by their own lights yes. and they might not be able to comprehend or see value in doing things better when they can say to you look i will drive one of my three ferraris home or whatever you know so they might not actually see the merit in in what might be for them squandering time Doing this when things are working well. If you've got so much going on, and I don't mean to uh, say cast any aspersions on on anybody's choice of career, but if you have immersed yourself so much in that kind of line of work or way of thinking, you might just have too much going on to start bringing self doubt into the equation. And secondly, it's a kind of piranha esque world to to some extent, and bluster and courage and and confidence is still such a big part of. Appearing to be successful, and as I was saying a few minutes ago, if self-doubt is a key ingredient of being a good critical thinker, it's not going to sound very attractive to them. So, so, so yeah. So I think some of them who are high-minded in this particular kind of way would be interested, but I think a large number of them might say, "Well, that might well be true, <laughs> you know, on, a, on an objective level, but it's not. It doesn't com- conform to my." interests at this point mm. or to my utility function or whatever yeah. the case might be. Yeah, it doesn't necessarily track
1: to my measure of value or success. I mean, is it fair to say that exactly. if, if we want to be critical of critical thinking that we can't say that there is a correlation between spending time and effort thinking better and being more successful? There's not necessarily a correlation but, and there's a, uh, yeah, no, there's a caveat Oops. on that, Yeah, if your definition of success has some level of concern for the world, a relatively big picture mm. built into it, if you are concerned about the well-being of more than perhaps just your close circle of influence, your own family, maybe your own bank account, if you take a bigger view of the world, a more complex view of the world, we could argue that it's impossible not to have to engage with the challenge of thinking better at some point in time if you yeah. want to be more impactful or successful by that definition right
0: yeah no i'd certainly agree with that so i mean if you and so that's where we'd have to go go into the sort of values conversation and, I, and that's part of what I teach as well to try to get people to to care about those things that I think they should care about. I mean, so the, the future of the planet or more than just their immediate circle of friends and family and so forth. Mm. To try to get the, them to understand the idea of a, of reciprocal altruism and the fact that, you know, no matter how big and powerful you might be, there's somebody out there who's bigger and more powerful. And unless you have tried to create a world in which we look out for each other, you're going to get taken down one day as well. So just try to get them to think about those sorts of values things. But back to the second part of your earlier question around resistance to to, to questioning ourselves there i think we've unfortunately and this has partly been amplified by social media we're really at a stage where people feel like any criticism of their ideas or their thinking whether it's even internal criticism is somehow uh, self-worth negating or impactful mm. so criticizing your ideas means calling you a bad person mm. and yes. um And they don't want to expose themselves to that. And and I mean, so I I unfortunately am a bit of an alien here because living for, what is it now, 33 years or something in the university and mostly hanging out with academic colleagues, it's normal for me to pull each other's arguments apart and so forth. So the kind of arguments I'm happy to have, I, I, I certainly can't imagine people in general being comfortable with always being told that they're wrong, but in a friendly way, and then... You are workshopping a solution with the other person, so I think that's perhaps one of the main obstacles to people engaging in the process of thinking. So they they tend to view it as exposing weakness, and that people are going to then pick on that weakness.
1: I really want to jump on that very neatly uh, provided segue there around the role of technology and, and social media in in some of the some of the resistance that we spoke about to having ideas challenged, or ha- especially having our own ideas challenged, and how the act of doing so often Feels like we're having our, our character or our value challenged. I was was very lucky to do some some studying last year uh, abroad, and the building that we spent most of the time learning in was is opposite a big public park in in the UK in London, and that public park is it's called Link, Lincoln's in Fields, um, and it's known for being historically certainly in the seventeenth and eighteenth century a really popular spot for soapboxing for public debate for discourse for individuals to sit around and uh challenge each other's ideas and and this is not necessarily people in academia this is you know ordinary citizens passing the time um i guess in much the same way that we would today you know on, on Netflix or um scrolling through Twitter but but engaging in like quite rigorous conversation and this was a place that you could go to if you were interested in doing so you could you know listen to somebody standing up sharing their ideas and then you could have a go at them in in a fairly civilized and structured way we're talking about something that happened kind of 200 250 years ago and was a fairly accepted and important part of of the social norm and and, and the way we understood civilization to work how have we gone this far backwards what what feels like this far backwards this quickly because it it feels certainly to me that the space for meaningful debate has been reduced almost to kind of non-existence and maybe that's only because my you know kind of my experience of the world is largely filtered through things like social media but where do I go to have those conversations these days where do I go to listen to those ideas and and why 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 does it feel like we've gone backwards
0: I'm, I'm reminded of, of, I saw you had a, had a little misunderstanding with one of the more pugnacious characters on Twitter just the other day, which is the, the sort of thing that happens all the time to us if you try to engage. Well, look, a friend of mine says, or oh, has said a few years ago, that uh, humanity can either have democracy or the internet, but not both. <laughs> and, and as depressing as that it's is, I'm more and more thought, isn't it? <laughs> becoming so sympathetic to that point of view. The difference between that kind of agora situation, the town square of debate and all that sort of thing, then versus now is, to my mind, twofold. And one of the reasons is that everybody has access to a megaphone now, uh, whereas they didn't before. So you've gotten rid of that barrier. And, of course, those barriers were, were, were immensely classist and sexist and whatever, but leave that aside. I mean, even if they even if you just sure. stick to the, to the numbers, there were, there were far fewer people contributing, mm. and the, the barriers for entry were far higher, and that meant that the quality of stuff was going to be better. I mean, you'd remember just as I do the, the early days of the Internet and the, the joy of the, of the uh, old mail, mailing server lists, mail server lists, and the polite conversation and the rigorous and deep-level debates and so forth, because it was mostly university people on there, right? So it's the same sort of self-selection <laughs> going on. Yeah. Whereas now everybody is there. So so I've been trying to tell people who who argue with me about things like free speech, they keep on and I love John Stuart Mill, don't get me wrong, but they keep on using his old his arguments in defense of free speech. But the difference now is that I don't know if you know the story, but but he said that no publication of anything should be should be forbidden. But if people show up with placards outside the corn dealer's house and incite a riot, whatever, then you can shut them up because people are gonna get hurt. Mm. But now the corn dealer is all of our houses and you're outside my door shouting all day and night and bullying people into suicide on Twitter and that sort of thing. And that's the second part of the answer for me is that civility has changed. People Mm. are no longer able to recognize each other as contributors or collaborators in a shared project, in a shared humanity project. It's rather I identify you as an enemy or as a friend and we tribe together as friends and we defeat the enemies and there's no charity in one's interpretation. Your your default move is to is to shut them up and humiliate them really as well.
1: Is it worth delineating the idea of free speech from another idea of free publishing? I mean, is it worth differentiating those two? And I think one of the things that is more remarkable about the internet, or, or certainly the social, if you like, era of the internet, the, the era that allowed just about anybody to publish content online without any technical knowledge or, you know, kind of very low cost. One of the fascinating things about that is that it's much like the printing press democratized access to information, made the illiterate literates, and you could argue toppled or played a significant role in toppling old worlds of, you know, kind of kings and aristocracies and the the typical gatekeepers of influence from, you you know, from that time. We've kind of made the unpublished published. And I imagine when we look back on it Fifty, a hundred years from now, we'll see similar degrees of influence and impact of of that that shift that we do to to Gutenberg's printing press. Is it worth saying that free speech and free publishing are not the same thing, or or is that not a worthwhile discrimination?
0: I'm not currently seeing a reason to dif- differentiate between them, except I mean, if there are ba- if there are barriers to entry with the publication thing, then of course we could draw a distinction that way and say that it's not equally available because I mean now that everything is so algorithmically driven towards your eyeballs, um, even though we can all start a blog site, nobody's gonna see your publishing, your commentary online unless you do get some sort of traction or do get some good uh revenue for advertisers or, or so forth. So but the same thing I suppose is true of speech. Your audience is always going to be limited to who you have able to speak to, you, who respects you enough to give you the time of day and whatever. So yeah, I'm not I'm not I'm not currently seeing any good reason to distinguish between those things at all but what you said now reminded me of of a different aspect to this problem which is that the democratization I mean here's another quote regarding that I mean Christopher Hitchens spoke about the exhaust fumes of democracy and and that could be well descriptive of our of our endless and hard to find sense in a uh, chatter on online and and in various forms of speech it becomes hard to separate any sense from nonsense mm. the signal to noise ratio is all completely skewed the problem that this has led to in my regard in my estimation rather on many people's estimation is that it's coincided with the death of expertise or the death of respect for expertise so we've in a sense overcorrected from those gatekeepers you were talking about yes People are always going to be more informed than you or than me in almost everything, in almost every aspect of human knowledge. Which should be good for society, yeah. Yeah. Now everybody's strutting around as if they're the experts on anything. They just pontificate. And if you try to correct or intervene, you might just get shouted at or blocked or whatever the case might be. Mm. So, And I'm not not saying the press is blameless here. I mean, even the traditionally more moderate and, and thoughtful presses have made missteps in terms of being politically alienating to some of their readers and so forth but there's an enormous role for gatekeepers is the wrong word you don't keep anybody out but for voices of authority who people defer to
1: if this is your first time listening to the one-eyed man and you're wondering what i'm trying to achieve here why don't you take a moment to go back to the trailer episode at the beginning of season one It's really short, I promise, and will give you some insight and context. If you're enjoying the show, please consider sharing this episode or the One-Eyed Man channel with, well, all of your friends in the entire world. And now, back to the show. If you were invited, presented with the opportunity to go back in time, maybe eight or nine years, and to have a moment to sit with the board of Twitter Uh, In its very early days, you and I are both a fan of the platform and I think have spent (laughs) many long hours, probably too many long hours, both participating and sharing ideas and then also uh, engaging with people. If you you had the opportunity to go back and and, and chat to the board at the kind of the moment, the cusp of of their sort of explosion in terms of critical mass before, maybe that moment before uh, it became a place for celebrity to become, I think of, of moments in the kind of... Obama campaign or Oprah's uh, use of Twitter for the first time that really legitimized it as a platform for for sharing and for for um exerting influence if you like it sounds negative but that's not what I mean what what would you tell that board how would you suggest knowing what you know now redesigning the platform or evolving the platform to make it more I, I don't know would you tell them to do anything or you mm. do you think it is a more good than bad space and shouldn't be changed.
0: No, no, I think it's certainly become a more bad than good space. Uh, I mean, those early days I also re- remember fondly, and we were all you, know, you kind of felt like you were making friends there, and people would check in and with each other, and you'd have these conversations, and it was, yeah, it was it was friendly banter. I, I think that that what I would do is ask them to look at precedent cases of this sort of thing. So. And you would have seen how how the evolution of the mail server lists, namely the kind of bulletin boards and things, became these toxic cesspits and moderation ended up failing. And you can see how internet comment spaces on, on online publications end up failing and people in the end shut them down. We have numerous examples of how people abuse these privileges to start becoming quite obnoxious. Mm. So I would have from the start asked them to consider things like uh, identity verification. Mm. You know, so who are you? You must be a real person. Now, of course, there's the problem there that you're going to uh, run into whistleblower issues. I mean, yeah. people might not might have things to say, but wouldn't be able to join. But maybe there's some way you could do a third-party identification verification or something like that. But I would I would certainly aim for that sort of thing and for seriously preemptive algorithmic checks on floods of things. So when something gains enormous traction. You don't just celebrate its virality because it's getting clicks on the on the promoted tweets, but you rather say, oh, hold on, this is perhaps an instance of somebody being attacked or vilified or whatever. And then you do some sort of low-level filtering or muting and control that stuff. So I, I, would, I wouldn't have said this 10 years ago because I might have been a more ardent defender in letting the marketplace of ideas just battle this out, but I yeah. no longer believe that the marketplace of ideas does uh, win the day, that the best ideas do always win. I think we need to moderate conversation in order to let people all in the end have an equal say they don't get that organically anymore do you think it might be a different place today
1: and i understand how many variables i'm about to introduce into the conversation but do you think it might be a different place today if when i got to a thousand followers on twitter i was asked to contribute one dollar for the privilege of speaking to those thousand followers per month not now, because you can't. You unfortunately, the cat is firmly out of the bag. But you know, at the beginning, you know, you, you get your first thousand people for free. This audience you have for free, <laughs> but you're going to pay for the privilege of publishing to the next thousand, and it's going to be to the tune of a dollar a month. It's just, I guess, what I'm suggesting is that there's something about the difference between absolutely free and a tiny little bit of pain, tiny barrier to entry, that both presents. Twitter with an interesting business model where they don't have to sacrifice the integrity of the platform to advertisers or at the behest of advertisers. And secondly, maybe introduces a level of accountability slash responsibility on the part of those people who have managed to gather some influence. Interested in your thoughts around that?
0: Yeah, I'd certainly be be very tempted to, to go down that road. I mean, I, I'm not sure if you can remember the name. I can't, but one of the I think it's one of the Twitter founders. No, it's one of the Wikipedia founders recently, recently launched a new social media network, a Facebook type thing, which is a paid for. Yeah, I think service. Jimmy
1: Wells is exploring that, that option. Yeah.
0: Yeah, it's Jimmy, whichever else. Yeah. So I joined that, but then, then um, left because as always, these things are wastelands, right? They never, they never actually take off or well, they haven't yet mm. because of the the market dominance of something like Facebook. But no, I, th- I think that that's People shouldn't think that just because. Um, so that I think the internet and information should be free, but Twitter is a business, and I, I don't see any problem with them if they've done it. Then, as you said, it would be more complicated now. I would have no reason to object to their doing so. It's not a. It's not a right that I have mm. to broadcast to whatever many followers I have. Um It's yeah, it's, it's not a right, and I, I think they would be perfectly entitled to. Suggest that either i I charge or that I am capped at a thousand followers or that I have the choice to leave i yeah i don't have any entitlement to that.
1: It is something I have thought about probably too much uh, because, as I said, you can 't really can't unwrap that gift, can you but I, I look it's also fair to say that that i I think I joined Twitter very early on and jumped in and out of it for the next nine months not necessarily seeing the benefit or understanding the potential of the thing or really even embracing what was possible. And only once there was that critical mass, uh, really, you know, kind of really being serious about participating and seeing the value. But I suppose you make the valid point that there's just the the level of consolidation and dominance of the key players in the sort of social realm now is just so overwhelming that Mm. it's hard to imagine anybody having, although, you know, we see platforms like TikTok doing that very successfully. So I guess, like you, I I lament some of the, you know, I don't want to sound like a complete um, fuddy-duddy, but like the the purity of that original decentralized, open sharing, you know, the the romance of that, the the possibility of that.
0: Yeah. And also the usefulness. I mean, in those early days, I I would, apart from those sort of uh, community-minded sorts of, engagements when i scrolled through the news feeds or the the more new news oriented accounts i followed i could pretty consistently find value there mm. whereas now some days it feels more like i'm reading a gossip column or yeah. something yeah so you, you're scrolling through looking for the occasional yeah. nugget so more and more you end up relying on looking for the crossword in the daily sun yeah yeah <laughs> so more and more you're re- relying on curated lists and so forth and it becomes in a sense burdensome to 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 wade through it and to you know yeah pluck those find those gems amongst all the nonsense what a sad tale <laughs> so I think <laughs> maybe, maybe in the interest of,
1: of 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 lifting the conversation i I want to circle back to that room that i I asked you about earlier on those twenty five executives and Uh, if they did say that they were interested and then followed up their their interest with a question to you of, you know, I I go to gym every day or I cycle twice a week because I want to get fitter and stronger and I can see the benefits of that on my body and I eat better. And, And they say, if I want to do the same thing for my brain and the way that I think, if I wanted to become like a thinking athlete, for lack of a better phrase, if I wanted to be very intentional about applying the same level of rigor to my mental and thinking fitness as I do to my physical fitness, where do I start? What, what would you tell them? Or how would you help them do that?
0: Well, I could certainly put together a course for them. <laughs> <laughs> I know of a few um, open programs. <laughs> it depends on, on how much one wants to, uh, how much time and, and money one wants to invest, obviously. But one of the advantages of, of the democratization of, of information has been this explosion of MOOCs, of the Massively Open Online Courses, hmm. And there's uh, one from edX called The Science of Everyday Reasoning, Mm. which is presented by some of the legends in the field. I mean, Danny Kahneman plays a big role in there, and that's a book you could certainly read, Daniel Kahneman's Thinking Fast and Slow, which uh, is very accessible, a bit of a doorstopper, but it captures, uh, basically, he's the inventor of behavioral economics, if anybody hasn't heard of him, and it captures many of the insights of his decades-long career and Nobel Prize-winning career. That's a great thing, the edX course that I mentioned. But um, I would, and on a kind of prosaic level, I would spend far more time or suggest people that they spend far more time not reacting, but rather just slowing down and applying some thought to what they've just read that has caused them an irritation, to think about charity, to think about the motive of the person writing it, to to spend some time just thinking about your reactions to things and why they might be wrong, why you might be misinterpreting things, to in a sense... Practice these skills as you go rather than think of them as things you need to go to a boot camp for. Just spend more time mm. engaging with the way in which you're thinking and doing this kind of self-assessment. How else could I interpret that? What would my competitor think about this? What, what does my partner think? I mean, just doing that kind of double, that, that checking of yourself in, a, in any way that you can would be an enormously valuable thing, which can also be quite entertaining mm. and result in some great debates and, and conversations. But, yeah, beyond that, those, those are two really good resources that I mentioned, the the, the MOOC and the book. But I think a lot of the work is more done day to day. When you're listening to the annoying host on talk radio, now why does he annoy you? What did he say? If he were in a room with you right now, what would you tell him is wrong with him? Mm. You know? mm. So do that kind of thing. Practicing, I guess, the art of
1: introspection or objective, try, trying to read the label from the outside of the bottle, right? which I think is... I, I like the mm. analogy of the muscle because it has to be practiced and it has yep. to be deliberate, and you get be- you can get better at it. Thinking about the world that way, it's, it becomes habitual, and so the more you do it, the easier it becomes. I, I, I'm at the risk of oversimplifying it. I, I don't think we think about it thinking
0: that way, and so it's yeah. worth worth introducing precisely? those analogies. Yeah, no, I think you're you're, you're exactly right, and and. I, I one worries that, that, that this is, in a sense, becoming more and more rare in, in today's discourse. And, and I also worry that lots of us who work in this field and who teach in this field become less and less able to communicate the value of it because, just as you say, these things do become second nature. And as soon as things become second nature, they become quite difficult to actually unpack and tell somebody else what you're doing right then, right? This is just... So, I mean, whether I'm good at it or not, this is just the way that I think, right? Mm. So, it's hard to explain to people how you think. Yeah, yeah, 100%. <laughs> so, um, so, or yeah. even
1: to be aware of it to start off with and then to kind of articulate that uh, to, a, to a third party. I mean, that's really, really tough to do. Yeah, yeah, I know indeed. So, one of the virtues of social media, as much as we spent a little bit of time <laughs> lamenting the the faults or or the the, the downfall... Uh, thereof is that we get to also uh, do things like this we get to do podcasting we get to publish ideas um, that that perhaps aren't subject to the same scrutiny or limitations that traditional radio or traditional television are and uh, you do this Uh, you've got a a really great show that that is specifically geared towards doing the kind of work that we've spoken about today right Um, can you tell me a little bit more about that show because I think if people have enjoyed Listening to you and, and uh, grabbing onto some of the ideas that we've spoken about today, that's another great place to do more of that mental yoga work. Can you share a little bit about mm. uh, about Square Brackets?
0: Yeah, th- thanks, Mike. Um, yeah, so this old friend of mine, old, long-standing friend of mine, uh, Greg Andrews, and I uh, routinely end up uh, bantering or have a years routinely ended up bantering with each other around really complicated things and trying to puzzle our way through what is it? What it is that confuses us about what's going on in the world, and why people are acting so strangely, and and why we're angry at them for acting so strangely, and so forth. And at some point, one of our partners said, "You guys just do a podcast, you know." Mm. And you kind of realize that the last hour of your conversation with this friend actually was um, broadcastable in a sense. Mm. It 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 could have been of interest to other people. So we decided to to commit to the to the task of. Of distilling ideas into a into a bite-sized half hour or so thing, and we try to tackle things which are current but also controversial, with the aim of doing, as I've been saying here on, on your show, of trying to slow down and look at the complexities of it, to in a sense force us to confront our own knee-jerk reactions to things and and mm. to learn more about. How people might see it a different way, and in doing so, you can expose your own errors sometimes and and you can realize that you are being naive or blind to something, so we talk a lot about politics, we speak about things like uh, i mean kobe bryant 's recent death, but of course, mm-hmm. we don 't just speak about that; we speak about how can two white men talk about this at mm-hmm. all you know so yeah. so we so we, for, we foreground all of those things that Twitter doesn't really let you speak about because you get shouted at so much. Yeah. So we, we purposefully put ourselves into uncomfortable spaces and we hope that listeners um, enjoy the ride and that it makes them think about these things in a different way as well.
1: Well, I'm grateful for that. I think it is brave work and it's also important work and hard to find. <laughs> these spaces mm. and these conversations are increasingly tougher to find. So hopefully the work that you're doing and, and some of the work that we're doing and and in time, maybe the pendulum uh, swinging back th- towards some sense of equilibrium introduces more spaces where we can have really difficult but really important conversations in a more humane and civil
0: uh, way. I agree with that with that sentiment, and and I'm grateful for you for also joining joining the fight with this with this podcast. And and I mean, a thing that I would want to say to listeners, apart from my my, my general advice earlier on about how to exercise one's thinking muscles is that just like we're talking about now with these podcasts, everybody needs to really focus on the on the fact that it's democracy and civility and humanity in terms of our humanitarian treatment of each other, these are all things that are under threat and we can start fixing those things you know, where we live with the people that we talk to on a day-to-day basis and it's no good I despair as much as the next person when I read the news but it's no good doing that and not doing anything in response. So let's try to, at least in our small circles of influence, try to reclaim some, uh, some dignity in the species of ours.
1: That's fantastic. Jacques, it's been an absolute pleasure. I look forward to connecting next time I'm in Cape Town. Great. Thanks, Mike. Good to be on your show. Cheers. Cheers. You've been listening to the One-Eyed Man podcast. I'm Mike Stopforth, an entrepreneur, writer, and public speaker deeply curious about discovering better ways to lead and better ways to live in an increasingly complex world. I find the best source of these ideas is the experience and wisdom of interesting people who are taking unconventional approaches to solving the world's most compelling problems. If you'd like to hear from someone I haven't yet spoken to, visit mikestopforth.com, click on the podcast link and send through your suggestions. A big thanks to the Solid Gold Podcast Studios in Johannesburg, South Africa for making this production possible. And remember, in the land of the blind, the one-eyed man slash person is king.
0: You've been listening to another episode from the Solid Gold Podcast Studios.